a sip instead of yours. If you're looking for a way to get more positive things going into your life, I'd encourage you to check out our friends at Christian Living Magazine. You can find out everything you need at ChristianLivingMag.com. This is our sixth study. Now we're getting into Hebrews. If you've missed some, you've missed the bits and pieces of some, you, you want a refresher on these, really easy way to do that is to just go ahead and go to sipandstudy.org. So it's sip, the letter N, study.org. Everything's under there. There's a past lessons area, takes you straight to YouTube, and it has the full playlist. You can watch them back to back to back to back all the way through. Of course, you can also listen to the audio version podcast. It's all available wherever you get your podcasts. So go ahead and grab that, stream it up. Good stuff. Get your study on. We are starting the letter to the Hebrews. Hebrews is a little different than what we've been working on. We just finished a 42-week series on the gospel according to John. The gospel according to John is probably my favorite gospel to go through because it's written pretty specifically towards people who weren't Jewish. They didn't have a Jewish background. And so it's written in a way to try to explain things so that you can get a great understanding and a better understanding of what some of the, the Jewish terms and terminology and what some of this stuff meant and, and how it works and how it interplays with our beliefs and what we should think and how we should act and respond. And it's a great great gospel for the vast majority of people because the vast majority of people don't have a Jewish background. Well, we're going to go on the complete and total flip side of that coin today. Not just today, but for the next several weeks as we go through the letter to the Hebrews. Now, the letter to the Hebrews, as the name may imply, and you and you might catch on, on this, it's written to well, pretty much it's written to the Hebrews. It's written to people with a Jewish background. So it's written to Jewish background believers, people who came from Judaism and naturally transitioned into Christianity as they accepted Jesus as the Messiah and the Christ. Now, there's a lot to go into with Hebrews. It is probably the most well-thought-out, well-written it's done almost like a, a sermon or someone who is just doing a straight-up theology write-up that then ends as a letter. It's really an incredible thing, but there are some key pieces that we need to understand before we start digging into this letter to the Hebrews because some things might seem a little weird and a little funky compared to the rest of the letters and the rest of the writings if we don't. Now, the, the letter to the Hebrews, it is one of those epistles and one of those letters and one of the pieces in the Bible that just straight by the quality of information, the quality of the theology, how well it matches and fits so clearly with the rest of scripture, it made it into the canonization process. It doesn't need anything else. It is very evident and it is very clear. So when I say it might seem weird compared to what we read to some of the rest, what I'm meaning is when it pulls back from some of the Old Testament scriptures, 
and, and I'm, I'm going to explain this to you, to you guys on this, but please remember, as we go through this letter, it's all Greek to them. All of it. Everything's Greek to them. And I mean that quite literally. The author of the, this letter, the author of Hebrews, every single piece of Old Testament scripture that this author pulled from came from the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, or we wouldn't call it, they wouldn't call it the Old Testament. We call it the Old Testament. They would just call it the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew scriptures. Okay. It is the Greek translation. And just like when you move from Greek to English, there's some stuff that in the transition, it's, it loses some of the nuance, right? We only, I love to point out that, and a lot of people do. It's a really common one that in English, we have one word for love and it really doesn't encapsulate all of the different versions of love that the Greeks talk about. There's other things in there as well. And so when we do this, please recognize this was written to Jewish believers who were most likely pretty well-educated because whoever wrote this was really well-educated and had a great foundation and a great grasp of the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, so their scriptures, but every piece of it came from the Septuagint, which means these people were not getting this outside of, they were, they were getting it outside of Judaism, right? They were getting, wow, that was wrong. They're getting it outside of Jerusalem. They were not inside Jerusalem. This would be people who had traveled abroad as Jews. So let's, let's get into this. When, when we dig into scripture, we always want to go through and get proper hermeneutics, okay? We want to get the proper who, what, when, where, why, how, so that we can look at this with a proper worldview. Okay, some people think hermeneutics and worldview are interchangeable. That's kind of half true. They kind of are. Hermeneutics is, is how we would read an older text, like the scriptures, in a worldview. It's how we would grasp their concept of worldview. And to do that, we really want to look at the, the basic fundamentals, right? We want to look at the fundamentals of the area. Who wrote it? Who'd they write it to? When did they write it? Where was it written? Where was it written to, right? What region and what area? Because cultures and things are different. But then also remember there's subcultures, right? And I'm sure wherever you're at watching this or listening to the podcast, you could probably agree, even in your own city, there are a bunch of different subcultures. You know that there are different groups of people in that city that have a different culture, maybe slightly different, maybe drastically different than the culture that you experience and that you claim to and that you go through. So there's tons of different cultures. So we want to look at the different cultures, cultural concepts, things like that. And then also how, like when was it written and how, like how, how was this getting abroad? How was this happening? Now, how is a little different with this? Clearly, it's it's it was written. Ta-da. But when we go through and we look at ancient documents and we look at these ancient texts and we look at old accounts of things, we need to make sure that we are, are looking at it and we are studying it with the mindset that the author intended. That's how we can properly apply this to our lives, is, is by taking it how it was intended when it was written. Now, the Bible is an absolutely beautiful piece. Okay, it is a living document. It can and does speak to people today. And you can read the same piece out of the Bible a hundred times. And God can speak something different to you 
a hundred times. He can speak the same thing to you 99, and then one time he just hits you with something. You have that epiphany moment go, oh, I needed that. And it changes, maybe not everything, but it changes your view on that. And all of a sudden you start moving and you start working in a different way. So recognize the Bible is a living document. God can change you through it. Keep reading it. Keep going through it. But when we study this, there's a difference between reading something and studying something. When we read it, we're just reading it, right? We want to get, get the baseline information. We just go through it. When we study, we really want to make sure that we are taking this as the authors intended. So we go in. If you have, you have a study Bible, strongly encourage you on your study Bibles, right before you get into the actual scriptures, there's several pages usually, at least one, two, three, or four pages, something like that, that gives you a nice introduction. It'll tell you about the author, the audience, the title, the date that they were written, the themes, the purpose, the occasions. They'll give you timelines. They'll give you all sorts of stuff. That stuff's there not just to make the, the people who wrote it feel smart. It's to give you the baseline information so that when you study it, you can actually take what the author intended out of it. It helps us with our worldviews. So, now that we've taken a few minutes here to go through some of that, let's actually do that. Let's look at that information before we hop into this lesson. Who? Well, the author, we actually don't know. We, we really don't know who wrote this letter. It's, it's widely speculated. And a lot of times and a lot of places, it was historically associated with Paul. But we have some issues with that. It's not written how Paul has written anything else. In fact, Paul usually assigns his name to it to grant the authority so that people knew that it was credible because it was written by Paul. So it doesn't seem like Paul, not to mention it doesn't have, it doesn't have the natural emotional outbursts that Paul tends to do. It doesn't have any of these normal trademarks that Paul tosses in there. Plus, Paul, because he is the Pharisee of Pharisees, he knows Hebrew, and he knows the Hebrew scriptures really, really well. And when Paul quotes scripture from the Old Testament for us, for them, it was just the Hebrew scriptures, right? Their Bible. He would pull from both the Hebrew version and the Septuagint. He would do both Hebrew and Greek. The author that wrote this exclusively uses Greek, so it's probably not Paul. Some associated this to Barnabas. Martin Luther considered that it could have been written by Apollos. But I think Origen said it best in 254 AD when he said, who actually wrote the epistle? Uh, only God knows. Only God knows. And I think that's actually fair because it we don't have a whole lot to pull from to say, well, this is Barnabas's writing style. This is Apollos's writing style. We don't have a ton to pull from and to grasp that and to go, this is, this is really what's going to work. I would say that the number one that people had always historically pulled from is Paul, because Paul wrote so much of the New Testament that it's just a natural, it's a natural thing to just assume this was Paul, but it lacks all of the Paul characteristics. One more that I didn't mention is when you get into chapter two, verse three specifically, there's an indication that the author to this didn't ever witness Jesus himself. Paul did. Paul had that encounter. So again, most likely not Paul. But we don't know who it is. We do not know who the author is. However, the audience did. Throughout this letter, the author 
makes comments and references that allude to the fact that the audience knows them and that they're coming and, and the audience, audience is aware. It's just a known incident. So when it was delivered, it was most likely delivered as a letter saying, hey, this is from so-and-so. And they just knew it and accepted it and it was working and it was beautiful. Lost to time. Lost to time. However, the audience, from the context of the letter, because they're also not directly announced, we're not told inside the letter who this is specifically written to, but from the context and the way it was written and the types of things that are brought up, it is very consistent and very likely and widely accepted that this is written to Jewish Christians, people who were Jewish, who were, who were Jews, Jewish, and accepted Jesus as the Christ or Messiah and moved forward. It does talk a little bit about Gentile believers, but the emphasis is is really on the Jewish believers. And with the emphasis on the Old Testament topics, that makes it really intended for that Jewish Christian. It's commonly believed and accepted that this was written to Jewish believers in Rome, which actually fits. this. The first known area that this was in was in Rome. We started seeing other pastors and preachers quoting from this and writing quotes from this letter in Rome. And not to mention, at the end of the letter, the author mentions that the Italians send their regards. The way it's written, it really appears that it's people from Italy who are not in Italy giving their regards back to the people that they know back in Italy. So it's most likely Jewish Christians who were living in or around Rome. Which brings us to what? What is the theme of this? What, what, is, what is this writing? Well, first of all, it's a letter, but it's a rather unique letter. It's almost a sermon. It's almost a direct sermon, like a written word theology statement slash sermon. Now, the main theme of this is to reassure the readers that their faith in Jesus is, is good and that it's true, that it is a true faith. Jesus is the true Messiah, the true Christ, the true way to heaven and to God the Father. And it's also to warn against walking away from the faith in Jesus, but to rather continue on with Jesus. It has a very heavy emphasis on Old Testament figures and how Jesus is greater than they are. Again, giving the thought that this was written primarily to the Jewish believers, because if you were a Gentile believer, that wouldn't matter and it wouldn't, it wouldn't make a lot of sense. Unless this was written to a group that had accepted the Judaizers concept, which was any Gentile would have to convert to Judaism prior to converting to Christianity or accepting Jesus and moving on with Jesus. Now, if that's the case, still, you're talking about Jewish-based believers. When was this written? As with the authorship, we really don't know. However, there are some pretty serious context clues that we can take throughout the writing that give us a great indication and we can narrow the range down into a, a nice nice little section to where we can we can know within really within a decade, 10 years, most have it narrowed down into three or four or five years, but there's still a few that want to push this off a little bit later. However, my personal thought on this, based on the historical evidence, based on how everything is going, most likely this was early to mid-60s in the AD. So 60 to 66 AD, I would likely put this closer to 62 to 64 AD, and there's, there's some reasons for that. So this was clearly written after Jesus was crucified, so 30 to 33 AD. So we know it's after that. Hey, context. 
The author also writes about sacrifices as if they were still happening and they were still a regular thing, which gives us a great indication that this was written before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So sometime between 30 and 70 AD. Also, the author brings up Timothy, which Timothy was a, a very well-known figure throughout that century and throughout this time frame. And when we couple that with there's talk of praying for others who are jailed, others' persecution, but there's not talks about the death and the killings. Chances are this is either before or very into the very early stages of Nero and the persecution that Nero placed the Christians under in Rome. So most likely, and that started in 64 AD. 64 AD was when the fire of Rome happened. Nero started trying to slaughter and wipe out the Christians and so most likely because they're talked about being jailed, they're not talked about being killed and martyred. This was most likely either right at the beginning of that or before that. So I would actually say that this most likely was sometime between 62 to 64, maybe 65 or 66, because it would be early enough into Nero's wrath that maybe it wasn't written in there as something, but I, I really don't think so. Logically, I would say this is somewhere between 60 and 64 AD, most likely 62, 63 would be a, a great, a great concept to think of. Where was this written? Again, w w with the author not being known, we don't know. There's it doesn't talk about where this was written. The only thing that we have a clue as is that this is with Italians. You know, the author was with Italians that were outside of Rome, sending their regard back into Rome. So most likely was not in Rome. Why was this written? Well, the what section really gives us a great indication as to the why. The author is encouraging people to stay strong in the faith of Jesus and warning against going back to their former beliefs, specifically back to just traditional Judaism. Why? Well, it's a fair assumption that people were beginning to doubt. This was written, we see clues inside the scripture that this was people who never saw Jesus, right? And Jesus talks about how it's greater are they who believe and didn't see, right? And so we're starting to see believers who are believers simply by faith, which is great and beautiful, but they're sitting there going, well, we're hearing that maybe it wasn't true. And we're starting to see people getting persecuted. And is it worth that? And so they're starting to take steps back and trying to go back on the faith. Okay. There's strange new doctrines that are trying to be folded into Christianity, we start seeing that. You see that with the Judaizers. You see that with uh, a bunch of different groups trying to mix in different beliefs. And the disciples, excuse me, now apostles, are working really, really hard and really, really diligently to weed that out and tell people, don't do this. It's not good. We got to stay strong to the gospel message that you were given. If it pulls away from that, it's fake. Don't go to that. Stick to that gospel message that you were originally given. And so they're starting to see this blending. And I mean, let's face it, if they're a Jewish people, they're very well aware of what happens when their faith gets mixed with another faith and how God doesn't like that and what tends to happen as a response. And so they are most likely pulling away, whether it's because they're just not sure or they're seeing too many weird things starting to pop up and it kind of worries them. And so they're considering stepping away from the faith. So that is the why. It is to encourage people to go forward, continue on in the faith, continue moving forward in the faith, and stick with Jesus. How? 
Now, this particular epistle really reads and feels more like a sermon than a letter. However, it, it ends with some very letter-esque features. There are many references back to the Old Testament showing how Jesus is superior to all that had come before him. And, and I mean, this really blocks it out. The author really blocks it out like a very solid theological debate or a theological statement as how Jesus is greater than everything that had come prior to Jesus, alluding and showing God's people that direction and that path. This is why it's so important that we also look into the Old Testament and we know these things, even if we don't have a Jewish background, our church history, our faith history does. And so it's good for us to actually read the Old Testament and know these prior things so that when we move forward in this, we understand where we came from and what God had already taught his people. One of the most central and key arguments and motifs that the author uses is better. Jesus is better, or we also see more or greater than. So why go back to the old ways when the new is better and superior in every single way? But we also know as people, that's human nature, that comfort of the old. We know the old. We know this. It's okay. It's, it's familiar. We're aware of what this is. I would rather go back to that because I know it than to continue to go forward into something that I don't know. I have faith, but I don't know. It's like every time we change a computer or a TV or change apps or email services or anything like that, except for infinitely more, because now you're changing your full-on belief system. You don't have to sacrifice anymore. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. It's taken care of. It's done. It's a beautiful topic to start on here on this Easter weekend. Hey, Sip and Studiers. As you may know, the family and I have been called into missions and are now officially missionaries to the church in Pakistan. Can't tell you how excited we are for this. It's a great opportunity, and we are so blessed for it. But if you've known anybody who's gone into missions, you know, can't do it on our own. We need people to be partnered with us, partnered in prayer, and yes, also in financial support. But there's so much more. If you feel God tugging at your heart, letting you know that he has a plan for you to make an impact in the church in Pakistan, we'd love for you to reach out to us and partner with us. And you can do that and more at chogglobal.org slash dsbrown. That's chogglobal.org slash dsbrown, as in Drew and Sonny Brown. Now, back to the study. All right, so now that we have a basic grasp of the, the the core things that we should look at before we get into the actual letter itself. I think this gives us a great indication. We have a good idea of the timeline. This is probably leading up to Nero and the great fire of Rome. And so this is, I would say, this is probably just before Peter writes 1 Peter in discussing the fire of, of Rome and how people were getting into this massive persecution. So this would be kind of a leading into that. And we get this great, great response as to why Jesus, why should you as Jewish background believers, why should you stay with Jesus instead of going back to the old ways? Let's do this. Let's read it. This is Hebrews chapter one, read through the English standard version. Long ago, 
At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Okay, this breaks down into two basic sections. First of all, we see verses 1 to 4, the supremacy of the Son, and then 5 to 14, we get the Son above angels. Let's dig into this. Verses 1 to 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Very direct, very true statement. Our fathers is just it's an Eastern concept saying our ancestors, right? It's an Eastern concept saying our ancestors, people from our past. He spoke to our relatives in the past through the prophets. Verse two, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. This points back to like, again, John, the gospel according to John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is John 1, 1 through 3. He was in the beginning with the Word. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Pulls, pulls this directly, direct from the gospel accounts. Jesus, the Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he created the world. He created everything through Jesus. Jesus is that creator element. Now, inside of just these 
first two verses, there are three contrasting statements. There's, there's kind of a fourth that's implied, but there's three direct contrasting statements. And this is a, a literary concept, right? This is just the way he's the, the author's writing this and making the point. He's contrasting. First, we see long ago versus these last days. In the past, way back when, God was doing this this way. Now, God didn't change. He didn't change in, in giving messages and giving hope. He changed in how he delivered it. He had been delivering it through prophets who were given the spirit, were given words, and were then speaking and going out and doing this. Versus then he sent his son. Long ago, prophets. Recently, the son, Jesus. Okay, And then we see the third one, who received the revelation. Our fathers versus us. So long ago, in the past, our ancestors received words from God. And remember, this is kind of an Eastern concept, right? When we read this, it's very easy for us to, to think in a, a very Western way, because uh, especially if you're in the States going through this, that's everything we know. And that's why worldview is so important and why it's very important that we look at where was this written? What was the concept of the day? What was their culture of the day? And, and how did they view the world? Because that actually, it, it changes the way things can be read and interpreted and the way things Im impact how we take it, right? So, so when we read this, we need to take this with a little bit of that Eastern concept, okay? That the ancestors, the, the people of their past, their family members, you, it, it was a big deal. And it still is in most Eastern cultures. That is a very, very big deal and a very big concept. And so this is just going on with that, that exact theme, that concept. Hey, in the days of old, God gave his spirit to prophets and the prophets spoke words of God to our ancestors. That is how God gave his messages to our ancestors. But in these recent times, God sent the last prophet who was actually his son. The exact imprint, as we see in verse three, the exact imprint, the radiance of the glory of God. He sent himself. He sent it to our father's prophets. He sent to us his son. Now, the fourth implied contrast here was at many times versus the, the one and final time, right? Jesus came once. Now he's he's coming back, but for a totally different reason and a totally different cause. Okay, he came to live the perfect life, to show, to teach, to give these revelations. Like, hey, this is really how I, God, want this to be, right? This is really how it's intended to be. Walk with this. Walk with me. Let's go through this. I want that relationship. I want that community. No, your love of all of this other stuff is getting in the way. Rich man, sorry, sell your stuff, give it to the poor, follow me. He's not saying everybody needs to go sell it. That was that person's barrier. That was what they had set on the idol, set on the pedestal and was their idol, was their stuff, their things, right? God's saying, hey, no, you need to follow me. And if you're gonna do that, you have to really dig in and get directly with me. But Jesus came once. Now, the final word is from the son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Now, again, we already read John 1, 1 to 3. 
John 1, 1 to 3. And that's pretty much a direct pull from that. But we also can take a look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth. I want you to pick up on that. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That has some major implications. In fact, I'm getting ready to start teaching a a class at the college on spiritual warfare, demonology, going through some of this stuff. The realities of that is huge. Jesus was from the beginning and he created all. All of this was created through him. The angels, keep in mind this right here, this entire section here is about Jesus being greater than the angels. He was from the beginning. Everything in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. How could angels be better than the one who created them? They can't. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, majesty on high, that's a really normal indication for for God the Father. That's just majesty. It's capitalized. It's like a name. It's a title. That is God the Father. That is God in heaven, right? God the Father. Now, glory in the Old Testament God's glory is often seen metaphorically as light, right? We see that that verbiage a lot. It is the light of God, brightness, light, lightness versus dark, dark representing evil, light representing God's holiness and goodness and his glory. Okay, now here the author tells us that that light, that radiance, that light of God, his glory was seen in the man, Jesus, 100% man, 100% God. Okay, is seen in Jesus. He is the exact imprint of his nature. Now, when we look in the Greek, when this is when this was written, and we look back at the actual text, how this was written in the Greek, we first see imprint as character. Now, character is both the tool that makes, like a carving tool, when they would carve out of stone and they would recreate whatever it is that they're making. If they're making an art piece out of stone, if they're making a tabletop, if they're making whatever it is, it is both the tool and the finished product. That word means both. He is the exact imprint. Jesus was the one that made. And he is the exact representation. He's the exact image of God, of his nature. His nature is hypostasis. Now, nature hypostasis is the substantial quality or nature, which is a direct pull of that, of a person or thing. Jesus is the finished product, right? Both the maker and the finished product of what is exactly God's nature. This is a great translation for that, is the exact imprint of his nature. In fact, if you go through the language on this, it can actually be your your signet ring, 
back in the day when they seal, they would write decrees, letters, things like that. They would pour wax on where it was folded or rolled together where the edges met, and they would have wax there, and they would have their signet ring, and they would impress their seal into it. That actually is also a direct take on these words. He is the exact match seal. 100% true. Okay, That's what's being said here. Jesus is not only the embodiment of God's glory, he is the glory and is the element used to create and thus shows the glory. Now, when it talks about making purification for sins, God's, God's working with and for mankind on the cross. That's what he's talking about. He's, he died. That purification for sin, he lived the perfect life. He was the spotless lamb. He died on the cross. In fact, we celebrated that yesterday, Good Friday. Right now we're in Holy Saturday. Tomorrow is Easter Sunday when he resurrected and came from the tomb, right? He rose from the grave, proving that he had conquered death, proving that he was the Messiah, the Christ. Now, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Majesty on high, again, like we just said, that's the father. That's that's the regular representation of God, the supreme element of God, the father, whom the son and the spirit Trinitarian. Three parts, one God. One God. There is but one God, but he has three parts. We have Father, Son, Spirit. And Son and Spirit show that Father has the authority. They give that. They they look to the Father as that element that has the authority and that grants to them. Okay, now, sat down at the right hand. That is a great indication here. Because not only is he at the right hand, being at the right hand is an indication and a sign of authority. If you were at the right hand of the king, you had great power. The king trusted you. You could say and do things on behalf of the king because you had that much trust by the king. Well, he's not standing. He's sitting down which is an indication that that work is done. He has an opportunity to sit and relax at the, maybe not relax, he's still interceding, but you get the idea. That work is finished. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. He sat down. He is now seated at the right hand. Verse four, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, here's a fun thing. And this can be kind of, I don't know, I think it can be kind of confusing for some people. And, and it, it, it is. It's a complex concept. You have God, Father, Son, Spirit. The Son is then born as Jesus. So, But Jesus was man. He was 100% man and 100% God. So when Jesus died, the man part of Jesus died. And then the man version and the man part resurrected. And we had that glorified body. But that body had God, son, had infused with the human. And so when he goes and he's seated at the right hand, it's not like the person element goes away completely. Jesus ascended into heaven. So he was ascended and then seated at the right hand. Well. He's God, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy spirit. It's all one God, but now there's that body element to the son and Jesus, the human part inherited being the son. 
and that name. And that's kind of what's being said here. And I know that because this is a really touchy, really difficult thing to explain. I know I'm probably not doing the best job of the world explaining this, but I hope that gives some clarification and some understanding to what's being said here. Because God the Son did not inherit a name. He was from the beginning. But Jesus, the person part, hadn't been known yet. And so when he was born, he got to inherit that because that was part of it. His being the first to resurrect gave him the first inheritance right of the resurrected. He inherited that as that resurrection happened. And these are just man terms, how we can try to describe how God's working this behind the scenes. And then we translate it and all this stuff happens, right? So this is trying to explain in terms and words how God has worked this situation. Now, again, in Colossians 1.16, we get that indication that Jesus, the Son, all things that were created, seen and unseen, were created through him. The author is here suggesting that the Messiah, the human side of Jesus, and has thus become superior to the angels, as his name suggests as Son. Let's take a look at Romans 8.34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Okay, this just kind of goes with sitting at the right hand and also here being superior to the angels. He is interceding on behalf of us. Okay, he has gone before. Verse five, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today, I have begotten you. That's actually, in fact, for a matter of time, we're not going to read these. There might be a couple here that we're going to pull off and, and actually look at a little, uh, look at a little different, uh, uh, read them because there might be some minor differences. But for this matter of time, I'm just going to give you what scripture is being pulled from. You can write them down, look them up later. So that is actually Psalm chapter two, verse seven, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That's actually 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 14 to 16. Let's look at verses 6 to 7. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, this one I do want to go through because there is actually a piece in this that is different. Firstborn, this is the inheritance rights again, right? Firstborn being as in inheritance rights. But when we're looking at this, he's pulling this first section in verse six, or is that quotation, let all God's angels worship him. This is most likely actually pulled from Deuteronomy 32, 43. But when you read read commentaries and you read pieces on this, most people are saying this is kind of an interesting take on that because it's not necessarily direct. However, it's very important, and this is why I made the point to, to comment on this at the very beginning. The author of Hebrews, every time this author pulls from the Old Testament, he pulls directly from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation. And there are some... I don't want to say lost in translation, but there are some nuances that change or are slightly different. 
And again, it's just it's just language. The meaning is still there. It's still good. It's it's obviously it was accurate enough that God deemed it worthy to be continued in the Bible as that. So we, it's not something we need to really worry about. But I'm going to bring out the point to this because his take from this makes sense when we look at how the Septuagint is written in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43, which says this, rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods. Now, each translation is going to write that part a little different, and some of them actually even pull that out. Bow down to him, all gods. Now, this G is lowercase. They pull that out a lot of times because some, some of the manuscripts didn't have it. Some did. Some manuscripts had missing pieces. It's normal. That's why sometimes if you go through the King James or the New King James, you'll have verses or you won't have verses that are in everything else. It just depends on the manuscripts. But this right here is very, very important. This is a lowercase g. And when we get into, in fact, let's, let's finish this. Finish this. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, lowercase g. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He pays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Now, why is this important? Why is that here? And why is this supposedly something that he's saying here in, in the quote that's here is let all God's angels worship him. Okay. In the Septuagint, when we look in the Greek in this, the Greeks here are weos and theos. When it says bow down to him, all gods. This is not saying gods. And this is just one of those tricky things with how we see this. Theos actually is gods. That is a, a term used throughout the Old Testament in Greek. And this is why I said it's all Greek to them, right? This was a Greek term for gods, lowercase g. The Greeks' structure was polytheistic. They believed in a multitude of gods. And so that was a normal thing. And this right here means gods. Like it's just saying, hey, there's multiple. Well, also when you look at the weos in there, the combination weos theos is actually sons of God, which is a very regular way and phrasing for angels inside the Old Testament. In fact, angels and demons, things like that, the terms for that they're not always all over. In fact, there's different terminology for them throughout the Old Testament. And so when we get the translations, when it got translated from Hebrew into Greek, we saw some shifting there. This was just one of the ways that they translated that to create that. And then when we go from either Hebrew or Greek into English, we also saw some from changes in how we would perceive based on the culture, the understanding, the language, yada, yada, yada. That's how we get this. My whole point is if you go back and you reference this and you see bow down to him, all gods, what is that about? Is the Bible saying there really are more than one God? No, 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 no. This is sons of God, which is angels. Whenever you see sons of God, that is a direct reference to angels, period. Just keep that in mind. The next one that we see in verse seven, that is Psalm 104, four. Let's go eight to nine. But of the son... He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. 
This is pulling from Psalm 45, verses 6 to 7. This is actually, it's, it's, a, it's about the Davidic Messiah. That's what this psalm is regarding. So Jesus is the only one that could truly meet the requirements of this psalm. And so Jesus, basically saying that Jesus is rightly called God. Verses 10 to 12. You, Lord, lay the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. Now, Jesus's deity ship as being God is confirmed in verses eight to nine. The author confirms that and recognizes that and says that this is good and true and we should hold on to that. Now, the author is reaffirming that Jesus created and was from the beginning. This links the creation of all with the Son, as we saw back in John 1, and we saw here in verse 2, chapter 1, verse 2, as well as linking Jesus to being fully eternal. And this is pulling from Psalm 102, 25 to 27, in case you are wondering where this came from. But that's what's going on with this, is this multiple linkings into that, saying, yes, Jesus was God, is God, right? The man, Jesus, who was here, was also God, and he is God. But he also is reaffirming that all of creation came through Jesus, and meaning that Jesus, the God, is eternal. The Son is eternal. Right, 13 to 14, we're going to wrap this up here. 13 to 14. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Now, there's a lot in this section. We're going to take a couple minutes here. So first of all, the section that he's pulling from is Psalm 110.1. Let's go ahead and read that, actually, because there's there's some stuff here, and it makes sense. Let's, let's read this. Psalm 110.1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Okay, the role of angels is to worship God. Take a look at Isaiah 42, 8 if you want, and thus Jesus. Okay, Isaiah 42, 8, if that's if you want to make a note of that. So the role of angels to worship God and to serve for the sake of those are who are to inherit salvation. They are not there to serve men. They are there to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit. We can make that really easy. Let's change this just so it's really easy to understand. Their role, the role of angels is to worship God, includes Jesus and the Holy Spirit, by the way, and to serve for the sake of God's kingdom. God's kingdom here on earth. They are to serve for the sake of God's kingdom. They don't serve men or women, for that matter. They just are here to serve for the sake of the kingdom of God. Okay. Now, there is a very special emphasis here and a very direct emphasis on the term all. If we look into the Greek, there is an emphasis on all. This is actually implying 
that there are different types of angels. There's even different levels of importance of angels. He's he's acknowledging that. The author here is acknowledging that there are different types of angels. There's different levels of a hierarchy scheme of angels. Some are, are doing different roles and different tasks. But he's saying all of these angels, all of them, are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation, aka the kingdom of God. Which then takes us to spirits. They're ministering. He's already kind of pulled from that. Their, their, their job is to minister, right? To help. They're to worship God and to serve for the sake. So ministering, right? That's their point, is to minister to the people in the kingdom of God. That's their job. But they're spirits. This is recognizing that they're from the spiritual realm and are not of physical bodies like we have. Although we do at times see throughout scriptures, and we hear stories even today, of how they are appearing to people with physical bodies because nothing is beyond God, right? So, But they are of the spiritual realm, which gives us a whole nother can of worms to look at as the different realms. We have the spiritual realm, we have the physical realm, we have all these different things, okay? And this is all associated in throughout scripture, and it's stuff that was understood throughout church history and understood throughout the Hebrew culture back in the day, before. This was just stuff that was widely accepted, and because it was widely accepted, he just, carte blanche, just stating it. Here you go. It's a matter of fact. Here it is. Because it was understood and it was accepted and it was something they knew and fully comprehended and fully believed. And so it didn't make any sense to go beyond that, saying, other than just saying, aren't all of them meant for this? That's what they are. They're, they're spirits and they're all meant for this, right? So he's just carte blanche saying that, but because of our culture and the way we have kind of changed our understanding of angels and, and and things of that nature in the spiritual realm versus the physical realm. A lot of people today who are Christians will say, I believe in angels, I believe in demons, but they don't necessarily really comprehend or 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 accept the reality of a of a spiritual realm and things actually being there and happening. So that was just their reality. They just knew it. They just did it. That was their thing. They just go. So what can we take away? First of all, while we may not know exactly who or when the letter to the Hebrews was written, it's beyond clear that it belongs in the Bible and is good for our understanding and growth. It's good. This is one of those, this is honestly one of those books that just straight on merit of theology alone and, and linking and working directly with the rest of scripture, it doesn't even matter who wrote it. This is very evident and very, very clear that this belongs in the scriptures. Jesus is not, was not, nor will he ever be an angel. Rather, he was from the beginning with the Father. He created all things. Jesus, the person, was imbued with the Son, God, right, is completely together and currently sitting at the right hand of the Father. That theology is important. The angels worship God, meaning Father, Son, Spirit, one God, right? We have but one God. There is but one God. And in that God, we have Father, Son, Spirit. I can't emphasize that enough. We go through it a lot, but we, we're going to continue to go through that a lot. Angels worship God, Father, Son, Spirit, and serve for the sake of the kingdom of God's people. They are not to serve God's people, right? They're not 
servants to man. They serve God and they do it for the sake of God's people. They worship God and they serve God. They don't worship man and they don't serve man. That is something we need to keep in mind. Just like when we pray and we pray for things in Jesus's name, that is not just a a magic pixie dust that we sprinkle on there like, God, I want a Ferrari in Jesus' name. That's not how that works. You, you do it in accordance with his will and his wishes. It's an ancient, it's an ancient thing. When you speak on behalf of someone, you're you're you have their authority. You need to do something that is on that is in concordance with what they want, their personality, their set, what their mind is. So when we pray in Jesus' name, that's the thing, is we're praying on behalf. We're saying we have the authority of Christ. This is within his will and his want and his desires. And so we are praying for it in his name. It is not a I want a Ferrari. Okay. But finally, the author, the author of Hebrews brings discussion of Jesus being above the old ways. He starts with Jesus being above and greater than angels and showing that angels worship him. He, meaning Jesus, does not worship the angels. While we give honor and respect to God's angels, our worship, our devotion, must solely be to God himself. We do not, this, this whole discussion brings up the reality of the spiritual realm and angels. And this is a great reminder. God's angels serve God. They worship God like we worship God. They serve God like we serve God. We are not to worship the angels. We are to worship and put our trust and our faith in God Almighty. Father God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for, for your word, for this, this wonderful book, The Letters to the Hebrews. God, I just ask that you open our hearts, that you open our minds, that we can glean and grow from this, that you continue to work through us, that you transform us closer and closer to the image of your wonderful son, Jesus. Give us the strength and the courage to go out and live life today, this weekend, tomorrow as Easter Sunday, God, and throughout this week and do what it is that you're calling us as individuals and corporately as the church to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, hey, thank you, everybody. I hope you got something out of this. I hope you enjoyed this one. And we will be back again and we will be continuing on here in the book of Hebrews. Have a great one. God bless. <laughs>